many uh, crisis moments have you had in your life? In particular, how many moments of uh, crisis with your faith have you had? You know, people often uh, uh, around times of loss can experience that moment of, of crisis in their faith, whether maybe it's the loss of a job and, and the insecurity that comes with it, maybe the, the, the loss, of, loss of a friend or the loss of a marriage, the loss of a loved one. In those moments, we, we wonder, God, where are you? What, I have this expectation for my life, and it's not going the way that I want it to go. And so we question. We want to start to take charge of those moments. Maybe it's not a sense of loss. Maybe we get at that place where there's that, uh, that fork in the road, and, and, and there's this call, and it's very clear what God calls us to. And, and we know that there's this clear teaching in Scripture, and yet we have this opportunity to swerve. And there's this crisis moment. Do, do I want to go the way that God wants me to go and obey His teaching, or will I swerve along with a lot of other people and go a different direction? This morning we're going to talk about a crisis of faith. We're calling this conversation, we're calling it Faithless Faith. I thought about calling it abandoned faith, rebellious faith, contemptuous faith, but I landed upon faithless faith, and hopefully by the end we understand what we mean by that. We're going to zero in on a set of chapters in the book of Exodus. It's an interesting set of three chapters, chapter 32, 33, and 34. In fact, from a Hebrew standpoint, one could make an argument that everything before these three chapters was really prelude. That creation and, and the story of Noah's Ark and, and the call of Abraham and, and the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jacob and the move to Egypt and even the plagues against Pharaoh and the parting of the sea and, and the coming out into the desert all leads up to the moment that we have in chapters 32, 33, and 34. And then one could even see the experience of the Israelites from that moment on is really postlude to that experience, that all the kings, all the prophets, that, that they look back at that time as a hinge experience. Now we know in the time of that when Christ came, it redefined all of, all of history for all of humanity for all of time. But before Christ, one could make the argument that it was prelude, the crisis of these three chapters, and then postlude. If we zoom in on these three chapters, what we actually discover is that it's a crisis in three parts. There's a crisis of delay, a crisis of faithlessness, and a crisis of judgment. So it's Moses' delay, the people's faithlessness, and God's judgment. Now, as lush as it would be, to read three whole chapters from the book of Exodus out loud together. Uh, we're actually blessed by having all three of these crises appear in the first 10 verses of chapter 32. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the Word of God. If you have your uh, Bible with you, whether it's uh, in printed form or on your phone, I encourage you to follow along. We'll also put it on the screen. Hear the Word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 
the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. May God bless the reading of his word and may God bless our time together as well. Here's where I want us to end up. Uh, we'll be asking ourselves the question, who is the definer of your faith? Who is, who is the one that has the privilege to manage and set limits and, and guide your faith? Who has control of your faith, your faith experience? Is it you? Is it me? Do I have control of my own faith? Or have I relinquished that to God? In order to get there, let's take a look at the crisis in three parts. The first part, crisis number one, Moses' delay. Now, I've told you before, I've, I've included it in messages before, that, that I am not good at waiting. I do not like lines. I, I am the person, if there's a traffic jam, I will drive the extra 10 miles as long as the car can keep moving. I don't like lines at amusement parks. I've been told that now is the time to go because of the capacity limits. It almost makes it convincing. 
airports. You go and wait in line at the kiosk. You go and wait in line at the checkpoint. You go and wait in line at the gate. You go and wait in line at the bathroom on the airplane. You wait when you get off the airplane. There's so much waiting in travel. Well, for the people of God, it doesn't seem like they liked waiting either when they were at the bottom of Mount Sinai. You see, Moses was delayed. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was meeting with God and receiving the law. But there's something about delay that causes a crisis for us. Delay raises the question of uncertainty. There's this gap of knowing or of not knowing. What's going on? Is he coming back? Can we trust what's taking place? And this gap is either bridged by faith, that's a choice we have in any gap of not knowing, to be bridged by faith, or we swept away by faithlessness. It becomes its own crucible, this delay, this crucible in which there's this test that's taking place. Will the people of God trust the God who brought them up out of Egypt? Will they trust God's representative that God had chosen and that God had sent this person, Moses? Would they trust? Would they have faith? Unfortunately, with regard to this test, the people failed. Which brings us to the second part of the crisis, the people's faithlessness. Maybe you've had the experience of having to wait for something so long that it caused you to panic. Maybe it was when you were younger and, and maybe mom or dad said that, you know what, I'll, I'll be there to pick you up. And they gave you a time and that time came and, and they didn't show. And you know that feeling. You know that sense of what's going on and the fear that that can bring, the panic. Now, maybe I inherited this from my parents, but we like to hear from our two sons whenever they're traveling. That if they're on the road going somewhere, that, that they would simply text us if it were up to us multiple times during the trip. Uh, but at least when they got there. And then one of our sons, John, uh, ups and goes and becomes a wildland firefighter. And not only does he become a wildland firefighter, he becomes part of a hotshot crew which means that he goes away for 14 days at a time into the more remote parts of a fire and, and without any real support, and, and they just go back in there, and that we don't hear from them. And I find in myself that I don't like to wait, and it creates that sense of panic, and I try to take control of the situation. I go online, and I pay attention to all the data about the fire, everything that's posted. I have my list of calls I'll make if I don't hear from them by a certain time. Maybe you've had that experience. You see, if we let our imaginations run in the time of delay, we can panic. And then when we panic, we choose to take matters into our own hands. Well, obviously God's not paying attention. I better take control of things. And so when we look at this second part of the crisis, crisis number two, it has a phase one to it. The people speak to Aaron. It comes to us in the first verse of chapter 32. They say, up. They turn to Aaron. So it was God. God chose uh, Moses to be his representative. And then Moses had some concerns. And so God said, you can choose Aaron to be your representative. So this is second in command to, 
to Moses. This is the person that God said could speak on behalf of Moses to the people. And now the people are turning to Aaron and saying, up. In other words, they're taking over. They're taking control of the situation. No longer will they wait upon God. No longer will they wait upon Moses. They're going to tell Aaron what to do. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Uh, ancient uh, scholars of a- ancient peoples uh, will explain to us that, that these gods that they make, that people weren't really just worshiping a piece of metal. That what they wanted was, that what they believed was that these, these icons, these idols that they, would, that, that they would fashion, that that became a, uh, a, an access point to God. And so if they had a, a, an idol, they would have an access point. Moses was the representative of God. Moses was the access point that they had to God, but they don't know what happened to Moses. Yes, Moses was the one that God provided, but they no longer feel like they can trust that. There's an uncertainty. So let's, let's fashion some kind of access point to God for ourselves that we can control. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. A clear violation of the second commandment. And then they say, as for this Moses, this Moses, such a derisive term, they're abandoning him. The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. From our perspective, we just want to say, can't you remember? Can't you remember what God has done? That, that God has provided the plagues and he, he allowed you to plunder and, and then he parted the sea and then he gave you provisions on the way. And yet, in light of all these things, you abandon God and his representative. Now, listen, in this, it's not as though they changed gods. They still are going to follow the Lord. In fact, even Aaron uses the term the Lord. They still believe in the Lord it's just that they want their own access point to the Lord. They don't want to wait on the Lord. They want to have control over their connection with the Lord. And so we reach crisis number two, phase two. Aaron's all too eager willingness to participate. In verse four, after he asked for the rings to be given, he says in verse four, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. In verse 5, it drops down. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What's going on here, and Peter Andes does a great job of outlining this in, in his commentary But what's going on here is that they're rewriting the whole cultic practice, the whole religion. They're recreating the the religion according to their desires. God had said, here's what the altar should look like. Here's where the altar should be. And now Aaron, as the priest, is making a different altar to the God that they fashioned, to this accent point to God that they can control. And then he declares a feast. God had declared what the true feast should be. Now the people are taking over. This fits us better. Same God, but now the people are taking control of the religion. 
It's interesting because later on in the text, Moses is going to confront uh, Aaron, and Aaron in this lame uh, response goes, well, I, I just made it, and it went in the fire, and then this calf came out. It's like, like it was not my fault. Then we come to crisis number two, phase three, tier four, mitigation 17. And there's the full-on festival in verse six. And we find the people, this is their faithlessness coming to its fullness. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It was their religion, same God, but their religion. They were faithless to God. It was a faithless faith. They still, in their eyes, they still had faith. They were still a people of faith. It was only faithless faith. They gave up on the God who said, this is my representative. You have access to me through this person. And I am the God. I will, I will command you and you will follow me and I will provide for you. And they said, that doesn't work for us. We're gonna have faith, but it's not gonna be your faith. We're gonna be faithless to you but we're going to have our own faith that we can control and manage. We might ask, how could they? How could they, in light of all that God had done, how could they ever get to that point? But if we reflect upon it, we might find some similarities to our own situation. Listen, not, we didn't get just a Moses, we got a, a, a Jesus Christ. And we're actually going to talk about a comparison between Moses and Christ on Easter Sunday, and so we'll wait and do that at that time. But, but in the idea that we have a delay taking place, Jesus came into this world, and, and he died for us, and he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to be with the Father, and he said, I'm going to be coming back. I'm going to be coming back, and there's this delay. Our delay is not 40 days and 40 nights. It's been 2,000 years. And in the midst of this 2,000 years, we can start to think about, have we created images, icons, idols that we can control so that we can be in charge of, we still say it's faith to God, but now we're in control and charge of the limits and the experience of our faith. For instance, we build buildings. We create programs. We come up with worship styles. And these are things that we begin to focus on. These are our access points. God gave us Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as the access points to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. And he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's going to convict you and guide you, and it's going to be God's presence in you. And these access points, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and yet we create buildings that we end up having more conversations about building use or, or um, uh, the way that a worship service is laid out or uh, that, that we like this certain program. I experience God in this program, so I'm just going to guard and argue about this program because it's the access point to God I can control. Rather than going out and trusting the Spirit and being a part of God's mission in the world, let's just do this one thing because I can control it. I like it. It's contained. How many times have we argued over God's righteousness and his justice or stewardship? Instead, we end up focusing on the idols and the carvings that we create. It brings us to crisis number three. Crisis number three, God's judgment. In verses seven through nine, we find God informing Moses as to what has taken place at the bottom of the mountain. 
and God refers to them as your people. He doesn't say my people. He says your people. We already see God distancing himself. God's judgment coming. For, what a crisis. Yes, they made their own crisis. They were faithless, but what a crisis. Now, the God, the God of all creation is going, these aren't my people, Moses. They're your people. He said they've corrupted themselves. They are a stiff-necked, a stubborn people. And then in verse 10, we find these words. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. The people had given up being faith-filled, faithful to God. Instead, had become faithless to God, even in the name of their faith. God's response, the most pure, holy, loving, commanding God of the universe. I cannot stand this. Judgment is coming. And then we find how far God is willing to go. In the second part of this, he says to Moses, in order that I might make a great nation out of you. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to start all over again. I am going to, I'm so fed up with this people. They have crossed the line. Not a capricious God. This is not some God who just wakes up and goes, oh, you know, the sin is so severe. That's why this is such a, a, a pivotal text in all of the history of the Hebrew people, all of the history of the, uh, of, of the people of God. So severe is this rejection of God. That God is saying, I'm going to start over with you. The promise made to Abraham, I'll keep that promise, but now it's just going to go through you, and I'll get rid of the people. Judgment. It's so interesting, and we don't have time to do it today. Uh, we'll have to do it. In fact, I would have loved if we had made this a three-day experience for us to go through these three chapters. We would have had a number of presentations, some small group breakouts, some, some meals together, and to, just to spend time in this, because what we see in here, in fact, Peter Enns and others describe these three chapters not so much about the rebellion, but about God's forgiveness. And we find God, who we like to think of as omniscient and omnipresent and, and completely holy and all these other things. And yet in this text, there's a very, as Peter Enns points out, a very human element to God. Um, which shouldn't surprise us. Jesus came in and he was fully God, fully human. There's, there's a very, very um, uh, sense that we get there's, there's something else to God that we need to be aware of. But again, we don't have time to cover all that today. We can just know that one day we have to cover all that. So let's get back to that question. Who is the definer of your faith? Who manages your faith? limits your faith, controls your faith? Is it you or is it God? Is it, and for me, is it me or is it God? We know that there's this delay of Christ, that he promises to come back, that one day he's going to come back, but we don't know when. If, what if we knew it was next Thursday? <laughs> like, like we just knew. Uh, it, it came across, Karen typed up the announcement sheet, and she included next Thursday 
God's going to return. And we knew, if Karen said it, it had to be true, right? So if, if it's on there, we knew that God is coming back, Jesus is coming back next Thursday. How would we live these next days? But we don't know. We don't know. And so there's this gap of uncertainty. And to be faithful in that gap, to go according to God's direction and not according to our own. You know, uh, Jesus taught that story uh, where he, um, he, it was a parable. He said, listen, uh, the seed uh, of faith falls on four different soils. So it can fall on a path and a bird comes along, snatches and takes it away. That'd be like the evil one coming along and, and, and take, taking the good news and just removing it. And, um, or it could fall on a rocky soil and it doesn't get roots and so, um, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really take and it doesn't grow and it just withers. And, or maybe it, it's planted in thorns and the thorns come up and choke it out and those could be the cares of the world just choking out um, uh, faith in the person. And yet there's that seed that falls on good soil that grows and blossoms. And so we know that three of the four <laughs> descriptions are not good. And, and it's an opportunity that we can look at our own self and go, wait a minute, which, which of those soils am I currently behaving like? What, what is currently going on in my life? Am I claiming faith but being faithless? We might ask the question, if, uh, would God wipe us out and start over? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is where the difference between Jesus and Moses comes in. There's not another Jesus. Jesus is the answer, which is really good news. In fact, there's this uh, verse in John chapter 10. We just need to be encouraged by this verse. This is in John 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is really good news. Once saved, always saved. Then we have to look at a passage like this. Sometimes we might think, well, I believe in the New Testament God, not in the Old Testament God. It turns out that they're the same God. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, we read, for if we go on sinning deliberately, this is ongoing, continuous sin, and we're making the choice to do this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and, ha and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, listen, we know that once that, that Jesus says that, that no one can snatch one of his sheep out of his hand. That's, you can't argue with that. It's just plain and clear. That is the reading of the scripture. And so God may even use a passage like this in Hebrews as a way of just helping and adding to that experience. But we can't deny the teaching of the passage in Hebrews either. So I was thinking about this, what would be, as people who are part of this relationship, part of this church, what would be 
symptoms of faith in the gap? Instead of faithless faith, what would be symptoms of faith in the gap? And our time is near out, so let me just run through these quickly. The first is this, a growing pattern of submission and devotion. If you want to just look for a symptom of faith in the gap, the faith in the delay, the faith in the not knowing, what could you look for? It would be a growing pattern of submission to God and devotion to Him. You might look back over the past couple of years and you might say, gosh, how has my devotion to God been enriched? How, have, how is my devotion and my submission to Him more full, more complete today than it was three years ago? And maybe we might be uh, not all that excited about our answer. And so we might think about the days to come in the next week, today, tomorrow, the, the day after that. How might I engage the Spirit of God and say, God, call me into the deeper waters. Call me forward. The second one is this, a growing commitment to unity and maturity in the church. If we belong to Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, if that is our only comfort in life and in death, then a symptom would be that a growing commitment to his church, to the unity. That's the one thing he prayed for, that they would all be one. A growing commitment to the unity and maturity in the church. Again, we look back over the past three years as our commitment to the unity and the full maturity of our brothers and sisters. Are we committed to serving that end? A third sign would be a growing pursuit of God's mission in the world. Am I more committed to proclaiming the word of God to the people who do not know him? Am I more committed to his righteousness and his justice in this world? And so who is the definer of your faith? May God reign as the controller of our faith. May God reign as the manager, as the one who sets the limits, as the one who calls us forward. May God be the designer of our faith even as we wait for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the story, the encounter, the, um, the truth being told on your own people. We thank you for letting us know that you are a forgiving God, that yes, judgment is there, but you pay the price in and through Jesus Christ. God, if we are faithless, to the degree which we are faithless in our faith, where we've taken over, would you make us aware of it and confront us and call us to be people of faith in you, not faith in our idols. We thank you for the access point of Jesus Christ, the access point of the Holy Spirit. May we find in ourselves, may we see this growing patterns, the things that you talk of in your scripture, even as we wait for Jesus' return. We give you praise. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for participating online. If you have any questions that came up because of this morning, would you please reach out? We want you to know that you are loved. You're loved by God. You're loved by us. You're loved by the people around you. You're loved by me. And together we get to be God's people and share that love with the hurting world. To God be the glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.